How do we claim our dreams? I have some ideas I'm going to share with you today. You know, we're finishing out a series on the power of decision. I'm using Raymond Charles Barker's book for inspiration. But I would say that if you've missed the last few Sundays, that's okay. We're going to do a bit of a summary today, and I'm going to cover, I think, some of the life-changing material from this book. The book is interesting in that it has a very simple premise to it. It says, obtaining our dream is based on thousands and thousands of individual decisions. That each day, we make thousands of decisions, and in a lifetime, millions of decisions. And the thesis of the book, and I think it's important, is that if we get even fractionally better at making good decisions, if even on average, even 5% of our decisions become more informed, more from the heart, more real for us, more intentional, if you will, even, even a fraction of them become better, our lives will magnificently change. We'll be more easily able to obtain our dreams. We'll be more easily able to see love and light in our life. That truly, one decision at a time, our life can improve. So last week we talked a little bit about decision making with regards to uh, accepting more abundance in our lives and it brought up the idea of self-worth that that truly if we're not worthy of the good life, if we don't sense within us the ability to, to have our dream, if somehow we think it's not for us, then it won't be for us. Last week, the call for abundance really is centered right here, that it doesn't come from without. You know, we often think of winning the lottery or some outside force as making us abundant. And I think it's true in other areas of our life as well. We think that, that love comes from without, that, that joy or peace or happiness is based on our circumstances. This series, I hope, has shown that all of this starts from within, It starts by making those important decisions. And that, I would say, is the other main thesis of this book, is that if we make decisions about and in our own minds first, then the rest of life will take care of itself. And so we're going to talk about that decision-making process today. And a good place to start, I think, is a joke about decisions. So this is a decision on becoming orthodox for our Jewish friends. So a Jewish couple, Faye and Monty, have been married for over 30 years. And, and you know, as with all things, over time, stuff happens. And so Faye and Monty decided to get a divorce. Very disturbing to friends and family. After a bit, Monty plunged himself into the synagogue and decided he would become a more orthodox Jew. And so he began studying with the rabbi. As things also happen, after some time apart, they became friends again. And eventually they decided to become cohabitating once again. You know, they never got a divorce, and so they decided to move together. But the problem, as you can imagine, is that Faye doesn't particularly want to become more orthodox. So Monty hits, uh, hits up the Rabbi Bloom to ask him some questions. He says, what can I do? How can I get Faye to become more orthodox? For example, how can I get her to run a, ki- a kosher kitchen? Well, Rabbi Bloom stroked his beard and thinks a moment. Tell me, Monty, you've been studying how many Jewish commandments and laws are there? Monty, who has carefully studied the Torah and learned this, quickly gives the correct answer, 613. Rabbi Bloom replies, so why didn't you decide to start with one of the easy ones? (laughs) That would be my question for you. 
where are we starting to make our good decisions? Where are we in the process of picking and choosing the decisions that are most important to us? Have you ever met anyone that's sort of lost in their decision making? Have you ever met someone that is so caught up in the day-to-day milieu of, of decisions that they're missing the big picture? That the really important things in their lives, like like family and like relationships, the really important things, like their own sense of who they want to be in the world, their own ideas of, of the light that they so so beautifully bring to this planet, those things go by the wayside, and instead they spend nearly all their time thinking of decisions like, uh, you know, where should we eat tonight, and agonizing over, you know, how things should be arranged in their home, or things like that. It's not that the same mechanism for decision making isn't in place it's that our attention is perhaps a little misplaced on what we should pay attention to what is important in our life many of us in fact choose not to choose in big areas of our life um, I'm, I'm going to do something a, a, a little rotten right now I'm going to ask for a show of hands how many people voted in the last presidential election Okay, good on you. Most everybody here does. I want to prevent, present some statistics uh, from the last presidential uh, uh, election. 61 million votes for Obama, 58 million votes for Romney, 94 million people chose not to vote at all. Let me read that again. 61 million votes for Obama, 58 million votes for Romney, 94 million people chose not to vote at all. Now, I know there are good reasons for it. I know a lot of people think that the political system's kind of broken in America, and they, they sort of wonder, uh, you know, whether their vote really counts. Or, or I've heard some people say, does it really matter even who's in the White House? The way Congress works and other things, it's hard for someone even with great ideas to get anywhere. But I want to focus on this idea of not choosing not making a decision. And I would suggest to you today that even when you do not make a decision, you are making a decision. And so often the decision that you're making is just to allow other people to decide for you. So often when we don't make a decision, when we don't lend our voice to what's going on in our minds, when we aren't clear about the power and presence that we bring to this planet, what we stand for, what's important to us, the things that really allow our light to shine brightly, when those are hidden away, when we choose either because we're, uh, I don't know, fearful of having our opinion um, out in public or whatever it is, when we choose not to choose, we're choosing. <laughs> And the scary part of it is, is do we even know who, who we're leaving it up to? So often when we don't cho choose, we're going with the flow of mainstream America. Now sometimes that's an okay thing, right? But does mainstream America adequately describe each one of you? I don't think so. We have dreams that are personalized to us. We have things that are important in our lives that may be very different to other people. And when we leave it up to the media to decide for us, when we leave it up to government with no input from us, when we choose to sort of abdicate the throne, if you will, and let whatever happen happen, 
So very often that may not be in our best interest. And I'll I'll one-up you. I said I was going to be kind of naughty today. Let me read what Raymond Charles Barker says about this idea of not making a decision. It's like, get ready. Columbus decided to cross the ocean. The American colonies decided to become a free nation. The Wright brothers decided to create a flying machine. Every, every improvement in our world has been accomplished by a decisive mind. The faltering minds, the hesitant minds, and the fearful minds have made no meaningful contributions. They have lived in the light of other people's minds. They're half-hearted, half-living, and half-dead. All right, doesn't get too much more dramatic than that. But I think the gem of truth is in there when we leave things up to other people when we don't make a decision in our life when we don't stand up for what's important and right to us is it any wonder that from time to time the world just seems like a mess how many of us well well what was the statistics 94 million of us in america decided we wouldn't even do the research necessary and vote last time around. Okay, so that, that gives us a picture of why we do want to make decisions. It gives us a picture of why what's important to us is important to us and we should stand up for it. How do we then go about actually making better decisions? I want to talk, of course, more about that today. And I did a little bit of research around this. And, and I, I think one thing is very clear to me. First of all, we have to be in the right spot to make the decision. And by that, I mean there are times in our lives where we are more apt and less apt to actually be able to make a good decision. And I did this, uh, a little bit of research, and I found this study done by some business school academics out of... uh, out of Stanford University. And what they did was they analyzed parole board decisions, thousands of them. And do you know what they found? Of the many criteria you might think that someone would be released from prison, um, you know, amount of time served, uh, uh, whether they were a a good citizen while they were in prison, you know, whether they they, uh, dedicated some of their service while they were in prison, you know, whether they maybe finished a degree or a GED while they were in prison. You might think there's a, a million different factors that would strongly influence whether a prisoner coming up for parole was indeed paroled. Do you want to know what the number one criteria was? That you were the first in line during the parole board hearings. If you were the first of the day when the parole board was fresh and coming from their homes with all their thoughts collected and their ability to reason fairly well and their ability to do good problem solving and make good decisions... And in some states, because the people, the parole hearings were arranged just alphabetically, your chances of being paroled is much better if your name starts with A. Now, I hope this shocks you, because it was statistically meaningful. The people whose paroles were up for review the first thing in the morning and the first thing after lunch, when, you know, the parole board had had a break and maybe a lunch, 
they were statistically more apt to be paroled. Now you might say, well, this is just the darnest thing, and it is the darnest thing, but it kind of makes sense in a way because the parole isn't just a yes or no decision. There's a whole plan that needs to go into place, right? So when you parole someone, you have to uh, figure out, well, so how long are they going to be under review? You know, how much money is the state willing to give them to help them find an apartment? You know, what is the plan for making sure that, that this uh, ex-con will be able to make it out in the world? And most prisons take this very seriously. And if you're tired, and at the end of the day, if you've already made like about a million decisions, ever had a day like that? Those were the people that were just sent back to prison to be reviewed next time because the parole boards were tired. So, when we're making good decisions, is it a good idea to do it at the end of the day? Is it a good idea to do it when we're not feeling our best? Is it a good idea after we've just had a really good argument with a loved one or a, or a family member? Is it a good idea to make a decision when you're hungry or tired or awkward or, or feeling rotten? No. And the science proves it. When we are feeling well-rested, when we are feeling at the top of our game, we can see more possibilities. We are more apt to come to conclusions that are meaningful and long-lasting. We are more apt to actually make decisions that we will like later on in life. So number one tip for making a good decision today, it's no more than to make sure you're in the right frame of mind to be making it. Are you feeling fed? Are you feeling well-rested? Do you have a sense of, of possibilities and a hopefulness right now? Do you feel like you're in a good frame of mind for analyzing the information and making that decision? And if the answer is no, don't do it. Do it in the morning after a good night's sleep. Do it when uh, you and your partner and your family are, are, are not arguing or whatever. Those kinds of decisions made under stress when you're tired, those kinds of things are very apt to be ones that will have to be redone, undone, and misdone later. Another tip I want to share with you, and this, uh, again, there was a nice research study on this one, is what is the tool that so many people use to help them make a decision? It's called making a list of pros and cons, making a list of fors and against. Do you know what's one of the actually worst tools to use? Making a list of pros and cons. And the, the researcher, um, Dan Heath, he wrote a book called How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. And what he said was the trouble with this brand of decision making is you've already narrowed your choices down to two. Do you know what I mean? So you've already said, I'm going to stay with the marriage or I'm going to get a divorce. And you list the pros and cons on each side. I'm going to stay with this job or I'm going to leave this job. You've already done the sort of black and white thing. You've limited your choices down to two. And what is true for most people is that when we only have two choices, we're going to pick one that is comfortable to us which means we will pick the status quo position in almost every case because the other one seems too outrageous. Totally neglecting the fact 
that there is an infinite number of choices in between those two things. And so what does the Dan Heath recommend around this? He says, for every decision you want to make, you should have a minimum, a minimum of four alternatives. Minimum. And he also suggests that one of the alternatives you don't even come up with. He suggests that you find someone who has traveled that ground before to submit at least one of the options involved, right? So if your decision is around whether it's to be staying married or in a job or something like that, one of your opinions should come from like a marriage counselor. One of your opinions should come from a job or a vocational counselor, right? Someone who actually knows about these things so that you're not reacting from that place of of emotional pain or anger or things like that. So first of all, get a second opinion so that you have more options. The other thing he says is of those four choices, and hopefully it's even more, uh, he actually suggests having like 10, 11, 12, many choices will actually be good for you. But if you're going to get it down to four, he says also make sure one of them is a totally out-of-the-box alternative. And by that, he means something that's fanciful, something that may not even on the surface sound like it's on target. So, for instance, uh, the job question, you know, well, should I quit this stupid job, right? It seems polarized. And so you might get a a third opinion from a, a, a vocational person that would analyze whether the job that you're in is actually a good job, regardless of how you feel about it. But what about a totally out-of-the-box alternative here? What about job sharing? What about part-time work? What about retiring? What about alternatives more along the lines of a career or a complete change in your life, not just this job, this particular job? We owe it to ourselves to have a wide range of possibilities in our thinking. If not... All the studies show, if not, we will tend to choose what we've chosen before. And the trouble with that, of course, is that's probably what got us into this pickle to begin with, right? It's because we keep making the same kinds of choices made on the same kinds of thinking. And if we want to interrupt this cycle, if we really want to have the next job be meaningfully better than the last one, if we really want the next relationship to be meaningfully better than the last one, Different decisions need to be in place. Different ways of looking things need to be in place. Different alternatives need to exist. So when you find yourself down to, do I do this or do I not do this? When you find yourself in that position of just coming up with black or white answers, yes or no, please examine at least four alternatives. The more the better. In fact, in the book, Dan says, if you generate as many alternatives as you can, as long as then the choosing doesn't seem unmanageable. If you get to the point where you have so many options that the choosing itself seems unmanageable, then stop. But up to that point, more information is simply better. More opinions are worth having. Makes Decisions that will last longer because you're taking more things into account, more possibilities. So then where do we go from here? We have some ideas about making better decisions. We have some ideas about the decision-making process. We know that it's never probably a good idea just to let a decision set and never make it because we know it will be made for us. How do we move forward in this process? The idea is take the more important the more mental decisions first. And by that, what I mean is, 
What do you want to experience in your life? When you put the stuff and the things and the the human world-based decisions aside, right for now, when you put all that aside, what is it in your heart that you want to accomplish? What is it that you want to experience as a person? Is it more about loving relationships and joy? Is it more about uh, building up success in your business or in your profession? Is it more about the tenderness that you have with the, the children that are in your home? What is it? What kinds of decisions do we make in our mind first that will really create a world that is appropriate for us to be living in, that we're living from our heart. It may be nothing more and nothing less than a decision to be the best parent on the planet. It may be something no more and no less than the being the best in your profession or, or understanding truly what marriage is in, a, in, in an outstanding and powerful way. Now the thesis here is that when we make that key decision or decisions, the other stuff will fall into place. Here's how it works. When we make a key decision, let it say that I want to be the foremost in my field. Let's say I'm just making that decision. More really than an intention, because I'm going to back this up. It's an actual decision I'm making. Then, as other decisions come up, I begin matching them against this dream, this goal, this high-level intention. And I can simply say to myself, well, if I do that, am I further along my path that I have clearly envisioned around my career and its high calling or not? If my high intention, if my number one decision is to be the best parent ever, if that's one of them, and then the choices come up to me, and I'm going, well, all right, this is, uh, this is my son's first chance at going on an overnight, uh, an overnight excursion. Does that enable me to my goal of being a great dad or not? Things begin falling into place when you have a clear idea, a clear picture, a mental equivalent, if you will, of what your life is to be, and you've made that as a firm decision first. It's interesting, I was reading through scripture the other day, and the idea is right out of Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all else will be added unto you. When we seek those lofty goals, when we truly seek something big like joy or like love, um, like being the best uh, parent possible, like, like being the best teacher or educator off as possible, when we take those high, high, heaven-like goals, the rest will follow. Then it's not a struggle. We will get where we're... You know, it's almost like the universe is going to conspire with us. Did you ever feel like the universe is conspiring against you? Have you ever had one of those days where... What is it that they say, every good deed goes unpunished or something like that? There's, there, there's some topical sayings around having one of those days when I just should have stayed in bed because like everything I touched went crazy. This is like the opposite of that. When you have the day that is crazy, it's because you don't have that unified idea of really what you want in life, and you're just being buffeted back and forth. 
when you do know what is right and good and beautiful and pure for you, when you're focused on those heaven-sent goals of love and light and joy, then the universe conspires for you. Then suddenly the means that you need to do things, the, the resources you need, the, the, the attitudes of friends and coworkers, those things come to you like a magnet when you know who you are, what you stand for, what's important. When you have those strong, heartfelt visuals of life as it should be yours, the universe will bring it on. You can almost rest, you can almost sit back because the goods will be added unto it. I'm going to close today with a final quote from uh, Raymond Charles Barker. This is, how he, uh, this is how he ends this section uh, on making these high-level important choices first. He says, the consciousness that is established in order and has definite goals does not labor with negatives. It's not turned aside by unanswerable questions. It knows what it is doing to accomplish where it wants to go. It gives no attention to the many side issues that could divert it from its course. It holds emotions and in control and uses them for a purpose. They support the main decisions and add their power to the process of bringing about your good. There is no inner conflict. There is an abiding peace in the entire function of thought and feeling and life. The entire consciousness is constructive. It's creative and it's productive. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe that is this thing called life. And what I know about life is, yes, it's full of decisions. That God itself is a decision in infinite array. Everything that's going on is one of God's decisions. And each of us, as a part of God, as a part of that one power and that one presence, each of our decisions can be just as God-powerful can be just as good, can be just as loving, can be just as peaceful, can bring about just as much joy. This is our power as an individualized center of God itself. I know that means me. I know that means each person in this room, each of us with each passing day simply makes better decisions. We, we take the time to generate many different options. We, we have the ability to know when we're in that frame of mind when good decisions are usually made. If we need to rest, we rest. If we, we need to take a break, we take a break. We are centers of great decisions. And I'm simply grateful for this. I'm grateful to be here in the power and the presence of God showing up as these hands and hearts. Grateful to be here with this eternal wisdom. I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. So glad you were here.